This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus, terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job, it's a calling. Agents answer the call working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. The only daily Premier League podcast. This is Football Social Daily. Hello, welcome, how you doing? I'm Jim Salverson and it's another week of Football Social Daily, a podcast keeping you in the loop with the latest news from the Premier League. I hope you had a great weekend, or at least a better weekend than Raul Jimenez, who is currently recovering from what we now know as a fractured skull after a clash of heads with David Luiz in Wolves' win over Arsenal last night. We wish Raul Jimenez a speedy recovery. It's undoubtedly a bad one, but is football doing enough to protect footballers from head injuries? After all, Luis continued for the rest of the half while Jimenez was rushed to hospital. We'll get onto that shortly. We're also going to talk about the major headache that Mikel Arteta is suffering, who is now currently overseeing Arsenal's worst start to a Premier League campaign for 40 years. Is the Spaniard on borrowed time in North London. There's a Premier League double to get our teeth into two this evening as Leicester City look to bounce back from their defeat to Liverpool against Premier League whipping boys Fulham and it's the Claret and Blue derby, if that's even a thing. Aston Villa travelling to West Ham and we're going to be taking in the sea air on the south coast with a floodlight focus that visits Southampton. We're going to be talking to Ben from Total Saints podcast towards the end of today's podcast. So looking forward to that, particularly on the podcast this morning is going to be Niall McCorn. Hello, Niall. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm not particularly looking forward to that section of the show. You said sea air, more sort of polluted air. <laughs> oh, um, that's nice, Southampton. Well, well, it's good if you like fruit and veg, because that's where all the imported fruit and veg comes <laughs> from the uh, from Europe. But apart from that, it doesn't really offer much, does it? And we've got Matt Pidd on the show as well. How are you doing, Matt? Hey guys, you all right? Man City fan, Man City back after the weekend, of course. Um... I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get too overexcited just yet because we beat Burnley five nil practically every season now, <laughs> yeah. don't we? <laughs> so, yeah, your six monthly thrashing yeah, of Burnley has now it. been completed. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Oh yeah. Hopefully we can kick on from there anyway. Right, quick word to the wise before we get going on today's podcast. There is a brand new podcast series out from Sports Social hosted by me and I'm chatting to a load of people who have had a big impact on football, 
but whose voices you don't hear all the time. It's people like Steve Eyre, the Manchester City coach who was partly responsible for bringing through Phil Foden. Former Premier League referee Mark Halsey's on the podcast. I also speak to Arsenal England and West Ham physios Gary and Colin Lewin about working with some of the greats in the game, including Arsene Wenger. It's a really insightful series hearing from people whose side of the game you don't get to hear about all the time. If you fancy having a listen, search Football Stories where you find your podcasts. There's also links to that in our Twitter account, at The Sport Social, if you want to find that. But let's turn our attention to the Premier League and last night's game that didn't quite make our review show last night because it was the late kickoff. Arsenal 1, Wolverhampton Wanderers 2. Now, I guess before we talk about the footballing side of it, we probably need to talk about the clash of heads between Raul Jimenez and David Luiz that saw Raul Jimenez rush to hospital, a 10-minute delay right at the start of the game, and what we now know is a fractured skull to Raul Jimenez. He's had surgery on that this morning. I mean, we wish Raul Jimenez a speedy recovery, Niall, but mm. that's a bad injury. Yeah, um, the, the key word is sickening. Uh, it was a sickening clash of heads. The noise is a sound in which I think I never want to hear again. And sometimes you just know straight away when you see an injury and you see a situation and a coming together that something's not right. You see it in real time and you think that's not good. And the reaction of the players, I think, says absolutely everything. The way that they were really waving their arms frantically to get the doctors on from both clubs to to tend to both Louise and Jimenez um, immediately and as quick as possible, I think just goes to show how serious it was. It is not a good injury. And, you know, you, you think about head injuries in football and the way that we're now really only just coming to terms with the fact that heading footballs and jumping in the air and putting your head near someone else's head with an increased force and momentum than you would do normally in pretty much any other sport uh, aside from probably rugby or American football you are putting yourself at risk and it's sad that it's taken the death of Nobby Styles, who died of dementia it's taken the diagnosis of another Manchester United legend Sir Bobby Charlton of dementia for people to realise that heading those big heavy wet leather laced footballs back in the 60s and early 70s is bad for your brain and it's taken us now for someone to die, Nobby Styles, and for one of our greatest ever players in this country, Sir Bobby Charlton, to be diagnosed with dementia, for people to really sit up and take notice. It shouldn't take for people to die, for people to realise that getting hit in the head repeatedly by something heavy is not going to be good for your brain. It can cause traumatic injuries, and neurologically, it's certainly not a good thing. And it was revealed only a couple of weeks ago that footballers are three and a half times more likely, sometimes even more than that, to suffer from dementia and Alzheimer's disease later on in their lives. Now, obviously, this is a, a freak incident. Two players going for the ball and they've ended up heading each other's heads. It's a nasty incident which happens on park football up and down the country week in, week out. Perhaps probably not to this scale. As you say, Jimenez has a fractured skull. He's had an operation now and... He's come through okay and we're wishing him all the best and I'm sure everyone on the podcast is too. But it shouldn't take for something like that for people to consider the protocols around concussions and it shouldn't have taken this long for protocols around concussions to come in. And uh, I was speaking to Matt before we went live with the podcast and he was saying about um, about Mason 
uh, when he was at Hull City, Ryan Mason, when he, he hurt his head. And Matt will probably go into that in, in a little bit more detail later. But why weren't any concussion rules brought in after that? Why weren't any concussion rules brought in after the World Cup in Brazil? where we've seen head injuries happen. Well, there are there are protocols, aren't they? And Arsenal were very keen to stress they followed the protocols. I guess the question is, are the protocols strict enough? Because after a clash of heads like that, where one player's gone to hospital, it seems... He's fractured his skull. Illogical. He's not just gone to hospital. Yeah. He's fractured well, his skull. They didn't know that at the time, though. But, I mean, it seems illogical that David Luiz would then carry on with a bandage with blood coming out of it for half a football. Yeah, there should have at least been a proper assessment, and whether that means a, a a concussion substitute that can be a temporary, like the blood substitutes in rugby, I I don't know, but it doesn't feel like they're doing enough at the moment. Well, it's funny that football's so far behind all these other sports. Mm. I mean, you look at rugby, and that is another physical sport that I mentioned a moment ago. They have concussion protocols. They have concussion substitutes because they're going in head first with people's studs and knees and scrummaging and rucks and mauls and all these things. They're gonna get knocks to the head. And you see a lot of rugby players wearing head guards, and sometimes that doesn't even make that much of a difference. I mean, it's obviously a help, but certainly we don't see many footballers wearing a head guard. Imagine if Jimenez comes back now, he'll be wearing one much like Petr Cech did when he got his fractured skull. Mm. Um, but in rugby, we see them wearing them as a precaution. In football, we don't see that. Another sport I would use, a sport which is close to my heart, is cricket. And we've seen players, even in the last 12 months, be hit in the head with a cricket ball and have to come off the field, even though they're wearing the top protection you can get in the game of these titanium helmets, they're brilliantly structured. They get hit on the head with a cricket ball at 90 miles an hour. You know, a five and a quarter ounce cricket ball doesn't sound like much, but at 90 miles an hour, an, an object hitting you in the head at that speed from that close range is going to do you some damage. And now we have concussion substitutes in cricket. I use another example, WWE wrestling. Wrestling. They used to hit each other in the head with steel chairs until maybe seven or eight years ago when they stopped. And the reason they stopped is because after some unfortunate events which took place in wrestling, they figured out that being hit on the head with a steel chair repeatedly is bad for your brain. <laughs> and, you know, even if we're talking about sports that aren't even sports, I mean, wrestling's called sports entertainment because it's fictional. Um, but those bumps to the head with the steel chairs were real and they were causing damage to the wrestlers and it was causing them problems later on in life. Why is it that something like WWE wrestling, which is an entertainment business, is able to address the fact that they have an issue with concussions and head injuries, whereas football, the biggest sport in the world, hasn't got it about them to admit that there's an issue here with concussion protocols? I guess that's it, Matt, isn't it? That's it. The this has to be one of the wake-up calls. This has to be one of the events. And with the other incidents that Niall lists there, it's time for the sport to start to take notice. And we don't want to speculate too much about what Raul Jimenez will have ahead of him in terms of his career, but it is an incredibly serious injury and there will be physical problems he has to overcome as well as mental problems he now has to overcome. Because I imagine when you've fractured your skull trying to head a ball that's going to play on your mind when you get back into the game if you get back into the game so it is time it is it does feel like it could be a bit of a watershed moment potentially absolutely but like what now saying there it's um it's football seems so far behind with things like this and it shouldn't take something like this to happen to a footballer for things to start to change it sh it should have happened a long, a long, long time ago, and you can see the stats coming in now about footballers with head injuries and the amount that are going to get dementia later on in life and stuff like that. And 
the percentages. It, it it was that that was sickening yesterday to, to see and you, you you seen the players' faces and you knew straight away it was something serious. I don't agree with Louise being able to carry on. You know what football is like. Sometimes the pride gets the better of them. Mm. Louise could have had a fractured skull for all we know and for all he knew, and yet he's been allowed to carry on with a bandage on his head with with blood coming out of it as well. Um, unfortunately, Jimenez wasn't conscious to carry on. So he's had to go off. But Louise was allowed to carry on. And I don't think it should have been allowed to. I think it should be a safety precaution there. Like, look, you've you've had, basically, you've, you've had a, re- a really, really bad knock there. And you shouldn't be allowed to carry on. Yeah, you, you've got your pride ahead of you and stuff like that. And you want to carry on. You want to help your teammates out. But no, I think after something like that, it should just be, you know, you're not allowed to carry on. I'm sorry. It's for your own benefit. We don't want anything to happen to you. Because if he would have went, imagine if he would have went up for another header and it would have happened again. Mm-hmm. And we could be we could be talking about two fractured scores here, and two potentially career-threatening um, injuries to two players, to two good mm. players. So no, I I think now it sh- it shouldn't it shouldn't have taught this to happen. But I think um, the Premier League, the FA, and the powers that be really need to just sit down and discuss now where to move forward. Because Alan Shearer had a right good rant on match of the day last night. I don't know if any of you saw mm. it, but he he hit the nail on the head with a few. Um, a few a few subjects last night with it so no I, I think now now's the time to, to take it into account everything and, and move forward because it can't carry on the way it is I think you're right though Jim I think there's a line there between the strictness of the protocol and the element of competition and I think obviously doctors because they're employed by the club maybe have this uh, feeling of pressure that if Luis is able to carry on and he meets the protocol then for the element of competition you know Arsenal needed a result mm. yesterday you know, then he carries on. But actually, you know, the doctors can only do what the protocol tells them to do. And maybe these doctors need to sit down um, with the Premier League and say, listen, the evidence that we've seen suggests that we need a tougher protocol. So I think that is the way forward, Jim. I think you're right there. Let's move on to the actual footballing issues, because that result last night had a, well, has massive implications for Arsenal, particularly, who have now made their worst league start since 1981. And I saw a few accusations, particularly on social media, which is never a barometer of actual life. But <laughs> some people suggesting that Mikel Arteta is a little bit out of his depth in the Arsenal, the Arsenal managerial position, Matt. And now this is a weird question coming from someone who on Friday was saying that Arsenal fans need to be patient with Mikel Arteta, but. Is he looking like it might be a little bit too much of a big job for a coach that's right at the beginning of his career? Well, football's a very, very fickle game, isn't it, Jim? He won the FA Cup for him and he'd not even been there for six months. They've made a bad start to the season, OK. But from what I've seen of Mikel Arteta's time there at Arsenal, he's, he has improved them, especially defensively. But the record suggests this season... They've conceded ten and only scored nine, which isn't which isn't great. They've got a minus one goal difference, right? And it's the worst start um, for the Premier League for how many years did you say? Well, since eighty one. So since what's that? Almost forty years, isn't it? For forty years, right? If he's given time to turn things around, and he does, it's going to be seen as a genius move from the Arsenal board. But obviously, if, thing, if things get worse, we all know football is a results based business now. Doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter your reputation. If things aren't going the way your um, your fans want or your board want, you're gonna eventually you're gonna get the chop. I think he should be given um, another transfer window, maybe bring in a few more players, um, and just see how he does then. Because I have a lot of love for Arteta. He helped us have some of the best seasons I've ever seen. 
for our club and he's not been there a year yet so I think that yes I can understand the frustration from Arsenal fans and understand that they're, um, the alarm bells are starting to ring a little bit because they're 14th in the league and they're closer to the relegation zone than they are the top but I think they just need to to just hold back a little bit and just give a bit more time let's be real if they get rid of Arteta who are they going to bring in is Pochettino going to go there no he's not he's not going to go there so I don't think they can get a better than Arteta at the moment so they need to just basically, basically lay off him let him do his thing we all know that he, he, he can he can produce good performances and he can't get the best out of his players. Is there an element here, Niall, that he's a bit of a victim of his own success? Because I think undeniably, when he first went into the club, he did have quite a immediate impact and then went on to win the FA Cup as well. So is there a case of maybe if he hadn't done quite so well when he started off, he wouldn't be getting the pelters that he is now? I just think it goes to show it takes longer than one season to build a successful football club, particularly in the Premier League. And it doesn't matter what your what your stature is as a club. It takes time. And the prime example would be, you know, the two top teams in the country at the moment, Liverpool and Manchester City. And I'm not saying that Manchester City needed a rebuild when Pep went in, but he certainly took it upon himself to pull the roots up and plant some new seeds because... Even though the the title winning squad um, from seasons gone by was kind of still there in bits and parts at Man City, he ended up make signings and make changes. And as you've mentioned on the podcast before, Jim, things like the academy players being coached in Pep Guardiola's style of play uh, before he even arrived kind of lays down that marker to, you know, let him get on with the job. And with Jurgen Klopp, when he took over Liverpool in 2015, I'm, I'm not even sure the most faithful Liverpool fan would have felt that they would be so dominant five years on and it takes a long time to build a project you look at Manchester United they're still trying to find the right formula to get back to the place that they were Arsenal are a very very similar scenario and you know Mikel Arteta I think as you say we, we've seen early signs that he's got what it takes and he's got that about him to, to rebuild Arsenal into something that the fans can be proud of and a successful football team again now whether they'll be challenging for Premier League titles again I'm not so sure I think that boat has sailed slightly um, considering the last time they did win the Premier League was you know we're getting on for 20 years ago now I don't think they're going to part company with Arteta and the reason I say that is because this is the first time in years that we've seen the Arsenal board really show some faith in a manager now obviously Arsene Wenger was there before but he kind of ran the whole show but in terms of uh, Unai Emery it kind of felt a bit trepidatious with him in terms of giving him money to spend and you know, giving him um, the tools that he needed to complete the job. I feel that we've seen actually from the Arsenal board with Arteta a little bit more faith in him. That rare sh show and sign of backing, the fact that they have in the past and not too distant past re uh, backed their manager, Mikel Arteta, publicly and, and in the public space, I think goes to show that they do believe in the processes that he is trying to instill in that side. And I think that it is not an easy process. And, you know, you have to think, you know, Arsenal are going to lose some games along the way. Arsenal are going to lose some games along the way. It's just the way it goes in the Premier League now. There's so many good sides and uh, the most competitive top division in Europe because every team is capable of beating another team on their day. Um, so it's just one of those things where Arsenal fans are going to have to stomach it for a while. I think they all know that Arteta's the right guy, but certainly with social media and the way that the scrutiny and the intensity around the analysis of games has increased in recent years, I think sometimes losing one or two games on the spin can feel like an unmitigated disaster. But I think in the Premier League in general, we've got this culture now in our division that if you lose three games on the spin, you're under pressure. Your job could be at risk, particularly if you're at a top club. So... 
I don't think Arteta is at risk of losing his job. And when he says he feels comfortable in his position, I would certainly tend to agree with him. It is a project at Arsenal. Mm. It's going to take time. And, you know, the same goes for Frank Lampard at Chelsea, although he's showing a little bit more um, because he's been given more money to spend, let's just say. Um, Then, you know, you have to say you have to give these managers a bit of time. And the problem is, are Arsenal fans patient enough, um, you know, in general to, to, to see it out? I think hopefully... They can be because I think Arteta will turn it around and it, it is does feel like a little bit of a, a trough at the moment, but I'm sure Arsenal will get back to winning ways. They've got a good set of players. They've got a good manager. Um, I can't see them dropping like a stone, put it that way. They've played a good team in Wolves and they've been beaten by them. It's not the end of the world. There's still plenty of games to go in the season and this is the start and the first step on a long journey, hopefully, for, for Arteta and Arsenal. I actually think there's some really promising signs for Arsenal, I think. Arteta's turned them into a very non-Arsenal looking team in fact in the fact that they're very defensively sound at the moment I think Gabriel's been a big part yeah. of that and they're just struggling to score goals well, they've solved one problem Jim haven't they yeah they've solved one problem at the yeah. back and they've created another at the front yeah you know as you say they can't when score when you've got Aubameyang in your team you'd expect to be able to score goals so whether it's generating chances for him or whether it's him being able to take those chances I don't know at the moment but it feels like they're moving in the right direction as for Wolves Matt I mean They'll be pretty pleased with the win last night. And considering they're having a quite an indifferent start to their season as well, they're sitting in sixth. They're not going to be too disappointed with that either. No, not at all. I think at the start of the season, um, Wolves were tipped to be one of the teams breaking into the top six from a lot of pundits and a lot of people that, that watch the game. Yesterday was an absolutely fantastic result for them. I, I expected a, a draw. I didn't, I didn't see a Wolves win coming, to be honest. And... Um, Arsenal was expected to have most of the ball like like they usually do. But the thing with Wolves was yesterday, they didn't have as much of the ball as Arsenal, but they did more with it when they had the chance. I think having a, a player like Adama Traore in your team is always going to um, give you a little bit of something different than what other clubs can can put against you. Adama Traore didn't get a lot of the ball, but when he did... He was he, he was he was he was he was mustard yesterday. I thought I thought he was mm. he was re- he was really really good when he had, when he had the ball at his feet. He created, back to his best. But yeah, he looked really back to his best yesterday. And he had he had a hand in the um, the second goal. He did um, he did a like Maradona esque type turn in the middle of the field there and played it through. And um, I think it was uh, Daniel Pedence who ended up getting the goal in the end. But Wolves mm. are they're quite like a Jekyll and Hyde sort of side. You don't know which one's going to turn up. When they do turn up though, they're always going to cause you problems. And when we beat them first game of the season, like I don't, I didn't think I'd ever celebrate a win against Wolves like that because, you know, traditionally Wolves wasn't seen as like a really threatening side. But nowadays, it just goes to show you how far they've come. Because I, I considered it a fantastic result when we beat them on the first game of the season, and I do think they are going to be still up there come the end, come um, come May. I think they'll, I'll still, they'll still be in and around the top six, whether they'll make it in there or not there or not though well, um, it will remain to be seen obviously they've lost Raul Jimenez now he's a massive loss for them he's their main goal getter but like they brought on um, I forget the player they brought on yesterday I think it was Fabio they brought on yesterday he cost 35 million from Porto he's not, he's not behind the door he's a decent player they've still got good players going forward I like I like Pedence and they've still got Traore mm-hmm. as well so as long as they keep the, these players fit and um, they don't concede too many goals I think I think they'll be up there. And I think they'll cause um, a few teams a lot of problems. There are still two Premier League games to go in this game week tonight. There is Leicester City versus Fulham. There's West Ham versus Aston Villa, and we're going to deal with them next on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode.
listen to the latest Premier League news, updates and match reports now. Just ask Open Sport Social. Welcome back to Football Social Daily. We're going to take a look at the two remaining Premier League games in this game week. It's Leicester versus Fulham, West Ham versus Aston Villa. A player that appeared for two of those teams in Fulham and West Ham sadly passed away at the age of 41 earlier this weekend as well. Papa Booba Duop, um, sad passing for him at such a young age and a man that played for your club, Portsmouth, as well, Niall. Yeah, he did. And very fond memories of Papa Bouba Diop. I think he was an extremely underrated midfielder in that era of the Premier League. He played for Pompey uh, from 2007 to 2010 and actually won the the FA Cup with us in 2008. He was part of the team that played against AC Milan in one of Pompey's greatest nights. And he was also part of a, a South Coast Derby winning team as well. So a lot of fond memories for Papa Bouba Diop. And obviously his nickname, The Wardrobe, was because he was just such a monster of a man. He was six foot five. And Paul Scholes, actually, you know, the mm. legendary United midfielder, said about Papa Bouba Diop, he's one of the most awkward players he's ever played against. And, you know, if you're getting that sort of praise from uh, Paul Scholes, then you must be a half-decent player. Scholes, he actually said that if you're trying to get into a physical battle with Papa Bouba, you've got no chance. You may as well forget it because he is that good and he's that strong. I think in terms of his imposing nature on the game, he just went about his business. And, and you know, he, he was there in the middle of the park as a bit of a general and, you know, he wasn't as good as Patrick Vieira by any means, but certainly he was that style of player. He was big, he was strong, um, and he had the potential to kind of change a game for you in the middle of the park, just with the ability to kind of snuff out uh, any sort of lingering attacks. So the fact that he's passed away at such a tender age is sad. I don't care what profession you're in. It's too young to die at age 42. So it's important to mention that he, he passed away of uh, motor neurone disease, Charcot-Marie tooth disease as well, and their muscle degenerative diseases. Obviously, we know about uh, motor neurone disease and the fact that the Charcot-Marie tooth disease is actually hereditary means that he could have shown elements of the fact that he had muscle wastage in his body and difficulty moving um, during his playing days. So it makes his achievements even more remarkable to play in the Premier League for a number of years and he was a gentle giant of a man Harry Redknapp was talking about him uh, yesterday when the news broke that he passed passed away saying that he may look imposing on the pitch and he may look big and mean but off the field he was as sweet a man as you could get and, and gentle giant is a really good way to describe him but certainly uh, a sad bit of news yesterday to hear of his passing and um, thoughts you know just with his family and with his friends and all of those in Senegal as well because of that moment of him scoring the first goal of the 2002 World Cup against France who were the reigning champions at the time the celebration of yeah. taking the shirt off and laying it down in the corner flag and they're all dancing around it beautiful moment in the World Cup in 2002 brilliant moment for Senegal oh, as a nation iconic um, and he'll be remembered fondly for that in his native country um, if not for anything else so uh, yeah rest in peace Papa Bouba Diop I remember him scoring an absolute hammer ha- hammer shot as well against United when he was um, playing at Loftus Road as well fully. well he didn't so. he didn't score many so no no, no. He had a, he had a, listen he had a cracking shot on him when he let one go yeah I, rem- I remember it going in fondly yeah I remember celebrating it like it was a city goal <laughs> he was um, part of West Ham's promotion winning team as well so we fondly remembered in East London and 
as you say, one of the most physically imposing players I think I've ever seen on the football field. I'm sure there'll be a moment to remember him in tonight's games versus Le- Leicester versus Fulham and West Ham versus Aston Villa. Let's deal with Leicester versus Fulham first. And I've seen a few people saying that at least two of the relegation places have already been decided this Premier League season. And I guess Fulham are probably one of those teams that look destined for the drop. Are they just going to go into this game with their heads down, Matt? Yeah, um, I, I don't see any other way going other than um, than Leicester beating them. They've got this thing as well with the, the penalty situation um, hanging over them. Like, I don't know how many penalties they've missed so far this season, but it's 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 too many. Um, they don't look like when they're going forward they're, they're gonna they're gonna score goals, but whenever teams attack them, they look like they're gonna concede, and that's always a bad sign. Um, I feel a bit sorry for Scotty Parker because I, like, I loved him as a footballer and he was very, very technically gifted. And you can see he's trying to implement a style out of Fulham when they're playing out from the back and stuff like that. And, and playing football, like what people tend to say nowadays, is the right way. Um, but when you haven't got the players with the quality to do it, it can sometimes be a little bit difficult. And I don't know how long it's going to take him to realise that. But maybe he needs to change it up a little bit. Maybe he needs to become a, a bit more pragmatic in his approach to games, especially against teams like Leicester, who have, let's just say, the better footballers in the side, right? They've got four, I mean, they've only got four points. I mean, the 19th, Sheffield United are at the bottom at the moment with only one point. They've lost seven and they've only won one. They've drew, they've drew one. If they can get a point here tonight, they'll snap, they'll detect that right now. If they could get a point right now, they'll detect that right out of your hands. I think they mm. need to rely on the home form, as a lot of promoted teams do, to stay in the Premier League. But the problem is at the moment they're not they're not getting there's no points coming from anywhere. So maybe tonight they need to just that this is where it needs to start, because it's I mean Burnley, are, are the team above them, and West Brom, but it comes to a point where teams start getting a little bit more adrift from you, and you're in that sort of like 16th, 17th, 18th, you know, to the bottom. And you're going to be there the whole season. I don't think personally they've got enough about them to stay up. I don't think they do. Maybe they'll surprise me. We'll see. They've done it before. I remember in the um, 07 08 season, the, um, they, they won like the, the last four games or something like that and ended up staying up. Didn't they beat your team, Portsmouth, on the final game there? Niall? Yeah, Danny may- Murphy. Maybe Danny we Murphy. might have already been safe, but I mean, West Brom beat us a few years ago to stay up as well. So, you know, th- there is spirit in these sides. If they can keep themselves in it, Matt until the end of the season. I mean, that's the key. You don't want to be cut adrift at Christmas. You don't want to be cut adrift in March because then you've got it all to do. But if they can stay within touch and distance of, you know, West Brom or you're on six points and 17th, then they've always got a chance. Yeah, that's it. As long as they stay within um, a touching distance of the teams above them, they've still got that fighting chance. Like you said, it's they just don't want to be cut adrift at Christmas. So, uh, I, I fear the worst for them tonight because Leicester, we all know Leicester are a decent side who have their, asp- their own aspirations in the league. But, um, no, I, I, I don't think Fulham will get anything tonight, but I don't know. I don't know what it is about Fulham. I have, I have a little bit of an admiration for them. They're a family club and stuff like that, and they've, they've always tried to go about things the right way in terms of playing football. Uh, and <laughs> Apart I, I, from the Michael Jackson statue, that's well, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> that's that's non-football related stuff. That that's outside the ground. Whatever goes on in the pitch, yeah, I admire Fulham for that. But um, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll see tonight. It's going to be a tough game for them, but I I hope, I hope to see an interesting match. We have seen some improvements from. Fulham and Scotty Parker Nile, but it just doesn't feel like those improvements are quite quick enough to save them. We're already a quarter of the way through the season. Yeah, and there's still a long way to go. And just like I said a moment ago, Matt touched upon too, you know, if they can stay within touching distance of the 16th and 17th place sides come spring and after Christmas when we've had this big glut of games, 
then they'll feel more content that they can get out of it. Even if they do stay in the relegation zone for the majority of the season, all you need to do is make sure you're within reach of those above you. The thing is with Fulham, and we say this about relegation sides, and we've said it for the last two years on this podcast, are there three worse sides in the Premier League than Fulham? Maybe, but probably no. I mean, the only other three right now would be West Brom, Burnley and Sheffield United, and that's just because they're all around them in the table. I think Fulham are in the the bottom mm. bracket of sides in the Premier League in terms of their quality. And unfortunately for them, it's up to them to make themselves uh, <laughs> that 17th place side because I can't see them finishing any higher. If you look at the table, West Brom 17th and then Brighton and Crystal Palace above them in 16th and 15th. So uh, aside from West Brom, Brighton and Palace are way better than Fulham. So, you know, I just can't see Fulham staying up, unfortunately. I know it's early and it's... You know, you don't want to hang your hat on something too early because, you know, you risk getting an egg in your face and being made look to look like a fool. But certainly I don't think Fulham have it in them. Although, coming up against the Leicester side tonight, if Leicester play anything like they did against Liverpool, where they were awful, Fulham have got a chance. If Leicester play like the Leicester we know under Brendan Rodgers and they can kind of use that last minute uh, result against Braga in the Europa League on Thursday to kind of give them a bit of momentum then they'll beat Fulham comfortably. But I think that's the problem with Leicester right now is that they've come off the back of a dodgy performance against um, uh, Liverpool and they've come back against Braga, so they've kind of built a bit of confidence back there. But if they play badly like they did against Liverpool, then Fulham definitely have a chance to win the game. I mean, that's it for Leicester, isn't it? They need to bounce back if they have the aspirations we know they have this season, and that is to be a top four team. This is exactly the kind of game they need to go in all guns blazing for and get a very good win against Fulham because we know teams can get very good wins against Fulham. Yeah, definitely. I think that, you know, Leicester will take last season where they finished fifth and they were much like we were talking about the relegation zone, staying in the hunt. They were in the hunt for the Champions League spots until the very final day of the season when they were pipped to the post by Manchester United obviously they lost to United and therefore United leapfrogged them into third and Leicester dropped down into fifth with Chelsea getting that fourth spot so I think you know if they can stay in and around the Champions League places between now and the sort of February time next year then they'll have a real confidence booster that they can go on and and do what they couldn't do last season the only thing for Leicester is even though they've got a game in hand, if they lose tonight to Fulham or you know don't get the result they want, they do have players, they do have sides, sorry, right hot on their heels. You know, Leicester on 18 points, below them mm. Southampton in fifth on 17th, Wolves in sixth on 17th, and Everton and Manchester United not far behind either on 16 points in seventh and eighth. And so that Champions League um, uh, shake-up looks even more intriguing. Uh, if they win, they can go above Chelsea and put themselves into third. And even if that's just for the psychological nature of the face value of the table and you see Leicester in third, that might even give them confidence then. So I'd I'd expect them to comfortably beat Fulham tonight, but certainly they need to put in a decent performance. They can feel confident that they can beat Fulham because of the form that they've showed in the Premier League already this season. But certainly you do have to get the job done and mistakes, I think, if they can cut out any 
any sloppy errors because you need to when you when you're injury struck like Leicester are you need to make sure that individual errors are as far out of the back of your mind as possible so mm. certainly I've, I'd expect Leicester to beat Fulham tonight um, quite easily in the end but it all depends on on whether they show up if they show up if they don't show up sorry like they did against Liverpool then they, they could be in for trouble but certainly they're fourth at the moment they'll want to extend that um, that positioning in the table to third if they can beat Fulham they'll overtake Chelsea and uh, set themselves up nicely for a tricky Christmas period which is always tough for everyone with the amount of games but you know if they can put themselves in a good position then who knows where they'll finish this year any decent result for Fulham is going to come down to their ability to score goals I know that's an obvious thing to say but as Matt's already pointed out the inability to put away penalties has haunted them this season and Mitrovic as well a player that many backed to be hugely successful in the Premier League despite the fact he was always going to be playing for a team at the wrong end of the table eight games without a goal for him now something that they really need to address at Craven Cottage the other game tonight is West Ham versus Aston Villa and Aston Villa had a brilliant start to the season Matt but now three defeats in four they really need to get some results on the board otherwise they're in danger of a bit of a rot setting in yeah um, from the, the Liverpool game I think they've only won two out two out of them games since, since they beat Liverpool 7-2 there was always going to be a lull after that because imagine coming after beating the champions by seven goals to two. I don't think you're ever you're going to get um, a better result than that all season. But you take that forward and you take that with a bit of confidence. And we've seen Villa this season. We've seen how good they've been going forward, especially when they've had Watkins, you know, Barkley and Grealish all working in tandem. Um, I think that Dean Smith's got a good squad there. He's got, a, he's got a very good squad and he seems to get them playing football the correct way. But if um, you, you go through the, these patches and seasons where you, you, you pick up um, you pick up a couple of wins but then you, you lose um, a couple of games on the trot. They've got nine points at home, so that, that's not too bad. But um, when, when you're losing a couple of games on the trot, I think Niall alluded to it before, the panic button starts to get pressed and it's a difficult game tonight against West Ham. We, we've seen West Ham this season... They've, they've, they've looked a lot more solid and they're away, aren't they? So, I mean, they've got no Barkley as well, Villa. And they've relied on Barkley and Grealish doing little bits of midfield for them. So Villa are going to have to approach this game in a little bit more of a different way tonight. Maybe they need to um, maybe they need to be a little bit more sort of defence-minded and try and catch them out on the counter-attack. But I think, if, um, I think if Villa play the way they know they can play, which we've all seen this season, they, they can they can score a lot of goals. I was going to say, it's interesting you say, do they need to address the way they play? Because I think you're right, Dean Smith has got this ideology about the way Aston Villa should play football. He plays a very attacking formation. He's got kind of that Ollie Watkins leading the line and then three offensive players behind him. But that has led to them conceding a lot of goals. They're letting nine goals against Brighton, Southampton and Leeds in recent weeks. If you're Dean Smith, Niall... Do you kind of go, well, we need to play a little bit more defensive. We need to protect the back four a little bit because that obviously runs the risk of blunting that attack. Maybe, but I think you need to just look at the way that Aston Villa have played this season so far. And on the whole, they've been very, very good. They've been much improved from last season. And I think that's the key. All I think it is now is that things have started to level out a bit. If you look at the teams in the Premier League that are above them, United, Everton, Wolves, Southampton, Leicester, Chelsea, Liverpool, Tottenham. Um, you'd say that all of those sides are probably better than Aston Villa on there any given day, uh, maybe by a couple of them. So I think it's probably 
equalised now, for want of a better word. The equilibrium has started to kind of balance itself out. Aston Villa's fiery start has kind of tailed off a little bit. And I think that that was probably what was always going to happen. As Matt Wrights rightly says, their kind of pinnacle was the, the massive victory over Liverpool. And, you know, it's hard to get yourself motivated for all of the other games after that if you've gone in and performed so well against the best team in the land. So I think they're probably roughly where you'd expect them to be. If they can win a couple of their games over the Christmas period, then certainly that they've got a chance of sticking around the top 10. And I think that's what Aston Villa fans would be aiming for. And I think that it's easy to start dreaming when you begin the first six, seven games in the top throws of the table. But let's be realistic here. It's a side that basically survived in the Premier League by the skin of its teeth last season, has made some good recruitment in the summer, worked really hard during the pre-season and the lockdown period. So since Project Restart, really, Aston Villa have been much improved. And I think that you have to admit that, you know, that that, that is a success story for them, even if they do end up finishing ninth this season. And, you know, people are saying, oh, Aston Villa are desperate for a win. They're not desperate for a win. They're not really. They've got 15 points. They're comfortably above the relegation zone, which is where everyone would have been looking at the start of the year. So they're actually overachieving, I would say, compared to expectations. Now, it'd be nice for them to get back into Europe, considering the size of the club and the history that the club has in Europe. But is it a possibility? Yes. Is it realistic? Probably not. So, you know, you'd expect them to do okay tonight and maybe... You might see a change of tactics from Dean Smith, but I don't think he should, unless it's really starting to go downhill again. I don't see any reason why Aston Villa should stop doing what served them so well already this season. I'm going to make a bit of a confession now, and it's difficult for me to do this. <sighs> Let me just brace myself. I think David yeah. Moyes isn't getting enough credit. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I thought you were going to say that West Ham might win tonight. I was like, oh no, my no, God, no, that's no, even, no, no, even no. more of a confession. I'll tell you exactly, before we talk about David Moyes, I'll tell you exactly what will happen tonight in the game. West Ham will lose by the odd goal and it will be a penalty. Uh, foul on Jack Grealish because West Ham's defenders do have a little bit of a habit of being a little bit rash, um, of a little bit clumsy in the box. So I think that's exactly how the game's going to go. But in terms of David Moyes, I mean, he's kind of been painted as this firefighter, as this guy who comes in to sort out issues at a club, keep them in the division or whatever it is. But actually, I think he's shown this season, he seems to have something back and it seems to be a little bit of the old David Moyes that we saw before his time at Manchester United. There's a bit of a hmm. steal in what he's doing. He seems to be... I mean, he's certainly got the West Ham team fitter than they have been in a long, long time. And he seems to be building something at the football club. Am I getting carried away or do you think there's actually some promising signs for West Ham under David Moyes, Matt? No, I don't think you're getting carried away at all, Jim. I think he's took a lot of unfair criticism. Obviously, his time at United, his, his reputation took a massive hit and things didn't get better. I think he went to Sociedad and things didn't get really get better for him there. Sunderland as well. Yeah, and Sunderland. <laughs> um, just in, I don't know, he's, he's just like, like he's, been at, he's been thinking at people to like, poke fun at, really. And I think what he's done at West Ham, I think that's sort of shut a few people up. Moyes seems to be getting the best out of his group and if a good, you get a good result tonight against Villa I mean Jim you, you could be fifth I was pitting us for I mean when you look at how threadbare the West Ham team is this West Ham squad and it is still very very low on personnel and we've been very lucky with injuries which is one of the reasons we're where we are um, so I was pitting us for relegation so yeah bite your hand off if you'd said we'd be fifth come this stage of the season what would you take this season Jim would West Ham fans be happy with a top half finish? I think we'd be very happy with a top half finish. And I don't think it's so much about 
where the team finish this season because ultimately we need to avoid relegation. I think it's about where the club moves on from here and whether there's going to be real investment in the playing squad and whether the either the board changes or whether there's a change in direction from the board. I think there's a bigger picture for West Ham fans this season than rather just what happens over the 40 league games. I think it's more about where the club is going in the long term. I think a European mm. qualification could be an absolute disaster <laughs> for West Ham, yeah. particularly if it was Europa I mean, League or something like that. I know the Premier League is a lot more competitive than it used to be, but David Moyes was at Everton for 12 years. Guess how many mm. times he finished outside of the top eight in the Premier League with Everton? It wasn't often, was it? Once. Once in 12 years. And Everton, before David Moyes, and I know we're talking 18 years ago that he joined Everton in 2002, they had um, a guy called Walter Smith in charge of Everton. Mm. And he was in charge of Everton for four seasons and they never got into the top half of the table under Walter Smith. David Moyes comes in, gets them into the top eight, 11 out of 12 years. So, I mean, that's the sort of manager you're talking about here. No one's saying that David Moyes is the next Mourinho or the next Pep Guardiola or he's going to win your trophies, he's going to win your titles. What he does is he makes you solid. And that's exactly what he did to Everton. He made Everton mm-hmm. solid. He even got Everton into the Champions League one season. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They broke into then, the top four, which is remarkable. The comes when the club wants to move to the next level. And that ultimately, is this manager the right manager to take us to the next level? And they try and overreach and they bring in a Manuel Pellegrini, for example. And it doesn't quite go to plan. Well, I think Everton were quite happy with David Moyes. And it was Moyes that decided to go to Manchester United. Yeah. And obviously everyone knows how that went. And since then... You have to say that Everton have kind of been there and thereabouts, but they've never been consistently in the top eight like they were under David Moyes. They've spent some time in the top 10 and then they've dropped into the bottom half and back into the top eight again. So it's been a bit up and down. And I now think Everton with Ancelotti have got something a little bit more solid. But as for David Moyes, I think he has a better pedigree than people give him credit for. He went to Spain after he left Manchester United. He came in at West Ham and did the firefighter thing like you say, Jim. But he's not really about that. He's not a come in and save the day sort of manager. He does need a bit of time. And you've got to remember when he first went into Everton, he was dealing with players that have been there for a long time, sort of seasoned pros, the likes of Ferguson, um, Lee Carsley, David Unsworth, players like that that have been there and done it in the Premier League. Now It was a big step up for him as well. He went from Preston, didn't he? He did go from Preston. And I don't think West Ham have got those types of players. But what Moyes was good at doing is getting the best out of what he had in terms of his budget and the players that he had and he bought uh, shrewdly I mean you think when he brought in Marouane Fellaini um, the impact that he made at Everton just even just Tim Howard smashing the ball up to him and Fellaini chesting it down the amount of problems that caused for teams now that's not the West Ham way it's not the nice style of football that West Ham fans want but in terms of pragmatism, David Moyes will do what it takes to get the most out of his side and get them into the top half. People think that David Moyes, because he managed Manchester United, must be this trophy winning manager. I can't think of a single trophy he's won as a manager. I don't think he's won anything, but he's not that type the of manager. The community shield. <laughs> he's the sort of guy that will get you into the top 10 of the Premier League if you give him the tools to do the job. As Matt rightly says, if West Ham win tonight against Aston Villa, they go fifth in the table. They're already on 14 points. They're one point outside of the top 10. They're one point away from Manchester City, who are 10th. And if West Ham can continually keep picking up results here and there, they could finish in the top half of the table. And I think that he does deserve more credit, Jim. You're absolutely right. But that's only because he's been given a little bit of time. And whether that's because of the resources at West Ham United, the reservoir is is slightly shallower than maybe some people might think at at the London Stadium I think perhaps maybe David Moyes is the right man for the job at this moment in time certainly Everton were kind of neither here nor there when he took over 18 years ago at Goodison Park and you know he kind of 
forged them into a solid top eight, top 10 Premier League side. And I think West Ham can be happy with that because the competitive nature of the Premier League now, I mean, you're not guaranteed anything. You can finish Mm. in the top eight one season, look at Sheffield United and you're rock bottom the next. So certainly if you can get that consistency, I think that would be a benefit for West Ham. It certainly beats battling relegation every year. David Moyes has won one trophy in his career. It is, according to transfermarket.co.uk, the English Super Cup. Whatever the crap that? that is. <laughs> I think the I, FA Community Shield. I think that it's the Community, community Shield, shield yeah. The English yeah. Super Cup. Never heard it called that It sounds that a before. lot better called it that, does, though, doesn't, doesn't it? it? Yeah. Who doesn't want to wear a Super marketable. Cup? Uh, right, that is it for our preview. Incidentally, there's some interesting injury news for both teams. I mean, um, Aston Villa still without Ross Barkley. He's going to be a big miss. They've got four or five players out at the moment. West Ham's injury list is down to zero because Antonio could be back tonight. There's a big decision for Moyes as to whether he brings Antonio straight back into the team at the expense of Seb Eller, who I think has been really impressive for the last few weeks. Right, we're going to talk about Southampton next. We're moving on. (laughs) It's all right. It's all right, Niall. You can cope with it. It's only 10 minutes. We're going to talk about Southampton for Floodlight Focus. We're going to be talking to Ben from Total Saints Podcast and we'll do it next on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk To hear the latest Premier League news for your team, just ask Open Sport Social. Welcome back to Football Social Daily. It is time for our floodlight focus feature and we're heading down to the south coast to St Mary's Stadium to chat to Ben from Total Saints Podcast. Thanks for coming on. I was doing a little bit of research on Southampton before we had this chat and kind of deciding what we're going to talk to you about and all that kind of thing. And I just kept on thinking that Southampton seemed to have faded into this mid-table obscurity now in terms of what's going on at the club, which... The more I think about it, the more of a compliment that becomes. Because when you're a team that's bumbling along at the bottom of the table and constantly facing relegation fears, I guess you kind of aspire to that mid-table obscurity for at least a few years. So you must be pretty happy with how things are going at the moment. Yeah, I think, you know, when you look at it, obviously, from the Saints' point of view, we need to be realistic in that the last few seasons we have still tinkered with relegation under the lights of Pellegrino, Mark Hughes. Um, I think many of us probably would have taken mid-table obscurity um, during that period. Um, certainly Ralph Hasenhutl's got bigger aspirations than just having us as a mid-table side. But I think the key thing, thing for Saints, like many clubs these days, is just staying in the Premier League. That's where the money is, and particularly through these difficult times, that's the, the most important thing. So I'm sure they would take mid-table now if you offered it to them, but uh, hopefully we've got aspirations with the start we made to improve on that, really. Currently sitting in fifth, despite the loss at the weekend to Manchester United, which is a game I imagine you probably feel a little bit hard done by not to get anything out. 2-0 up at the break. Is that where Southampton need to toughen up a little bit? They just need to be a little bit more ruthless and hang on to leads like that? (laughs) Yes and no. I, I think absolutely, um, you know, they're renowned now for having, I think it's 39 points they've dropped since Hasenhutl took over from winning positions, which was uh, the worst in the Premier League, which is obviously not ideal. But I think actually, you know, even as a, a very loyal and biased Southampton fan, I think you have to appreciate that Manchester United paid much, much better than us for probably 17 minutes of that game yesterday. I think it was pretty much our first opportunities um, w- that we scored from. And obviously, yeah, finding yourself 
2-0 up at half-time is a, a great position to be in. But uh, I think you probably couldn't argue that United even deserved to draw. And I think as, as a Saints fan, you know, I'm sure if you've done your research and your stats, um, there's numerous times I can remember over the last sort of 10, 15 years where we've uh, lost 3-2 to Man United. You think of the cup final, you think of Van mm. Persie hat-trick, things like that. So there was a sense of inevitability when uh, Cavani's goal went in, unfortunately. I think Ward-Prowse had a very decent game again. He put in the free kick for the opener as well. Now, Niall, who's on the podcast, he's a Pompey fan. He likes to have a little bit of a swipe at Southampton players. He's levelled allegations repetitively this season at Ward-Prowse being a free kick merchant. Is there a little bit more to his game than that? Yeah, I think um, the good thing about Prowse is he's the best thing to come out of Portsmouth since the M27, really. So I'm sure Niall will appreciate that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I saw something yesterday that made me laugh, which, uh, you know, that's now an area of the pitch that can officially be known as War Prowse territory. And I think it probably is. Um, as Roy Keane said during half time, it's, uh, it's almost like getting a penalty for Saints now. I think he scored his last three kicks from that region. I dare say that uh, in opposing dressing rooms, one of the things that they talk about is not giving away free kicks from that. And you know, I mean, Cavani's a world-class striker. You, you, you almost start to think that James Prow- uh, James Ward Prowse is getting into that bracket with his set pieces. Now there is more to his game than just doing that. But world-class, I, I think so. I mean, look at his record. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm having that. Ben, well, yet. No, I, I disagree. <laughs> I mean, I think actually, you know, he's he's one of the best in the Premier League at it. He's got 50% of the free kicks that have gone in in this season. He's now our record um, free kick taker in terms of um, Premier League history overtaking Matt Letizia. So, um, you know, I, I think he is someone that is in the England squad. You know, he again is on the national scene. So um, why not? You know, as I say, I think his quality is absolutely shining through. And the fact so many people are talking about him means that he is someone that I think is very much, um, you, you know, I think improving his um, ability to take them and deliver and more importantly, score them. Jim is right. I do come from the other end of the M27. And... <laughs> Although James Ward-Prowse is from a family of Pompey season ticket holders, you have to hold your hands up and say that he is unbelievable from the dead ball situation. However, the last Southampton fan we had on said that he's added elements to his game, like he can tackle now. Well, if if he's a central midfielder, surely he should be having these elements to his game anyway. And obviously, the, the kind of wild card, the joker in the pack for... For Ward Prowse is this ability to whick, uh, whip in a wicked free kick and, and corner and whatever. Um, but when we say there's more to his game than just free kicks, can you sort of pinpoint what those other strengths are, so to speak? Because I'm struggling to see what they are with my Pompey hat off, <laughs> apart from being a set piece taker. Yeah, of course. And uh, I mean, you're right. You know, he's obviously been at the club since he was eight years old, Niall, as you well know. So uh, you're right. He does come from a, a Pompey supporting family, but he's been at the club nearly 20 years. Now, um, I, I think, you know, the, the, the problem with Will Prowse is he's played hundreds of games for Saints, but he never really had settled on a position. You know, he was sometimes out in the right and centre and things like that. He played it right back a few times as well. What Hasenhutl has done with him over the last few years is um, alongside his set pieces, I say there's two things that he's probably really improved. He ran more than anyone else in the European football last year. Um, he covered more blades of grass than uh, any of the top five divisions. So he's someone who gets around the pitch and, uh, you know, he puts a lot of energy in in that centre mid position but I think the key thing that he's brought to his game Hasen tour is almost this sort of nasty streak you know he was known as being the nice boy of the team and things like that he can get around the pitch and he's one of those players that a bit like Man City you know he's, he's very good now at cynical fouls um, going in a, a little bit more I wouldn't say dirty but you know being a bit more competitive in the tackle which you have to do in, comp- in centre midfield so I think there are a few things now to his game that he's enabling him to become a, a more well, well-rounded midfielder Does it matter? if he has other elements to his game. I mean, if he is, as Niall has dubbed him, a free kick merchant, does it, I mean, if he's that effective from a free kick position, you could probably afford to carry a player like that anyway, couldn't you? In other aspects. (sighs) 
Yeah, I, I don't know that I agree with that. I think in, in this modern era of the Premier League, you know, you need to be a, a, a decent footballer. And, and you're right. I mean, his set pieces are obviously what he's known for, but he's the captain of the team. And, uh, you know, I always think back, I, I watched a lot of um, hockey when I used to, to be younger. And you always think England used to bring Callum Giles on just to take short corners, you know, things like that. And you thought, mm. well, that's pretty much all he ever does. And I think there was that that sort of issue with Ward-Prowse. But as I say, you know, over the last 12, 18 months, he struggled to get in the team when Haas and Hootal first took over. But, you know, it's clear now that he has added a, a few other facets to his game and I think they are important I don't think you can just carry him in, in the team now as a set piece taker the other player I think I've been really impressed with from a Southampton point of view this season has been Alex McCarthy who I don't remember mm-hmm. being this solid in previous seasons has he suddenly found form at the age of 30 or have we just not noticed him before I think, again, the thing with McCarthy was he always struggled to keep himself fit, didn't he? When he was at Crystal Palace and Reading and teams like that, he seemed to get get injured a lot. But I think, again, you know, I mean, half half the saves that he made yesterday afternoon, I think he caused himself by passing it straight to Man United players and things like that anyway. But, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, he was obviously uh, getting a bit bored down one end. But you're right, I think he has been consistent. He's probably been consistent for 12, 18 months now. And uh, there's talk of him getting back in the England squad. I think, you know, Southgate obviously likes Pickford. And, uh, again, you know, Manchester United sub yesterday, Dean Henderson is a, a phenomenal goalkeeper looks to have a brilliant career and you've got to think that those guys are probably a, a lot further ahead of um, uh, McCarthy now in the pecking order but from a Saints point of view there's still elements of his game you know he's not a great communicator he, he, he you know his, his kicking's not fantastic but I think in terms of a shot stopper um, he's one of the best in the Premier League again I wouldn't say he's uh, uh, you know in that top six probably but uh, someone that is working hard at his game and hopefully it's starting to pay off. Derby of sorts next weekend for you lot it's kind of a south coast derby I guess Brighton it's no, it Monday isn't. night it's- Jim, it's, it's, Jim, it's, Jim, it's, stop. There's only one derby. Stop. <laughs> of sorts. There's one derby South of Coast sorts. derby. One. There are two big teams on the right South now. Coast. One's Portsmouth, one's Southampton. That is the only South Coast derby. Look, any other team it, pales in comparison to those two. So let's leave it, it there. If we're going to start calling West Ham versus Aston Villa a claret and blue derby, then we can call Southampton versus Brighton a kind of South Coast derby. I think we should write an email to Sky Sports to explain that their marketing <laughs> procedures are all wrong. Anyway, uh, Ben, how do you fancy it for next weekend? That looks like a good three points, doesn't it, for you lot? Yeah, I mean, Brighton are on a funny side, aren't they? I mean, we've got a really good record. Uh, we were doing our podcast last night, and I think the last um, 12 games down there, we've won eight, drawn three, and lost one. So we've got a good record down there. We've won our last three down there. But Brighton are a funny side, aren't they? They, you know, they, they certainly give 100%. They won't be easy. But I, I, I would hope that we can kind of learn the lessons from the Manchester United game. We had a, a good performance at Wolves on Monday night where we had to be dogged and gritty and, and battled for a draw there. So... I don't think we should let the Manchester United game undo what has been a fantastic three or four weeks for Saints. You know, they've had a really good start to the season and hopefully we can take the momentum down there. I think, you know, squad-wise, we are um, we do have more quality than them. There's rumours that Danny Ings could be back as well to play some parts. So that's obviously going to be a massive boost as well. So I think you're right. We've got to be looking at it as a game that we can win. I'm sure there'll be more of a preview on that on the Total Saints podcast. Where can people find it, Ben? They can. There's a preview out this morning. It's uh, on Twitter at Total Saints Pod. You can find it on all the various uh, podcast channels, uh, Spotify, SoundCloud, etc., etc. Just look up Total Saints Podcast. Top man, Ben. Pleasure to speak to you. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Right, that's it for today's podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Make sure you've clicked subscribe. You'll get the next show as soon as it's ready, which will be tomorrow. And we'll have a full review of those two Premier League games tonight we were talking about earlier as well. Thank you very much, Niall. Cheers, lads. Thank you. Nice one, Matt. Nice one, guys. Thanks for having me. And we'll see you next time for Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily from Sports Social. Find us on Twitter at The Sports Social. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.